Our time in God's Word today is going to be in Exodus chapters 25 through 31. We won't be covering every verse. Next week, we're starting our series in 1 Corinthians, but this week, I wanted to do an important foundational teaching that we call a, a 101. And so we're going to be in Exodus 25 through 31. Please pray with me before we get started. God, I, I pray that your word would speak into our lives, that it would change how we think about ourselves, how we think about what we do, how we even understand our activity in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old movie that was not much of a box office hit, but was uh, has become a cult classic. It's called Office Space. Some of you may have seen it. And the reason it's become such a cult classic and an enduring movie is because it's it's a... It, it, it's, it's a movie about a struggle that we can all relate to. It, it's about a guy who just hates his job and, and can't figure out what to do about it. His name is Peter. And the movie opens with him fighting gridlock traffic on his way to the job he hates. And, you know, he's in one lane that's stopped and the other lane's moving. And so he, he goes over to that lane, you know. And he fights that traffic all the way till he gets to this nondescript blah office park. And the, the sign, you know, for the faceless corporation that he works for, it says Inatech, which is about as good of a faceless tech corporation as you could want. And, and this building is very drab and sort of shoulder shrugging sort of construction. And, and he, he goes in. And he makes his way to the suite where his his company is. And you just see him. You just see the dread building on his face and in his posture until he gets to this door. He lets out a sigh and he swings the door open. And, you know, the camera shows you this miserable scene of a sea of cubicles. And it's like this slow motion shot. And everybody in there, you just get the feeling... No one's ever had any fun in this office. Everyone hates being there. And as he crosses the room to his cubicle in slow motion, there's like, you know, just this, they really drive home the repetitive, monotonous misery of it. There's a, there's a woman like stamping things. And then there's another one answering phones. And she says, she says, keeps on saying, corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. Click. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking, just a moment, click, right? And it's just like that in this meaningless, monotonous misery. And he gets to his, his desk in his cubicle, he sighs, and no sooner has he sat down than around the corner swings his, his supervisor, who's like the villain of the movie, and, and he's got his coffee cup. And he's like, hey, Peter, how's it going? Yeah, I... Uh, First of all, I need you to come in on Saturday, right? <laughs> it's like, and then, and then he, he get, it becomes this running gag that he forgot to put his put a cover letter on the TPS reports. He's like, "Did you get the memo about putting a cover letter on a TPS report?" He says, "Yes, I just forgot to put it on there." He's like, "Yeah, here's the thing: we're using cover letters on our new TPS reports, and so." I want to make sure that all of them have that cover letter. He's like, I know I, I, it's, it's not a problem anymore. I've taken care of it. I, my next one will have it. He's like, did you get the memo 
I'll just send that memo again. And he walks away. And, and he, just when he thinks the ordeal is over, another manager comes up. And he says, hey, Peter, did you get the memo about the TPS reports? Right? And, and it is just the meaningless monotony is driven home. Like just the sheer misery of this job. And, and, and he, he, in a panic, grabs coffee with his friends real quick, real quick and he asks kind of the million-dollar question. He says, what if I'm still doing this when I'm 50? You, know, the, you hear the implied panic. What if I waste my life? What if I spend my days in this cubicle doing something pointless and meaningless and purposeless for, for no reason and then my life's over. I know 50 is not over, but to a young man, that seems like a long time. It's, it's a question to grapple with for all of us because work is such a significant part of our lives, whatever your vocation is. For, for some of us, we're full-time parents. And for many others, you know, we are going to spend most of our waking hours working or going to school so that we could start working. And you don't want to get to the end of your life. Look back and say, what did I just do? Why did I do that? That was dumb. I wasted my life. Work is also like identity forming. You know, it, it's like the second question we ask as Americans. Hey, what's your name? What do you do for work? You know, it's, it's that important to who we are. But there's... As important as it is, we've got to grapple with, with the problematic nature of it. First of all, because we are under the curse of our first parents' rebellion, our work to some extent can feel futile. There's none of us that are going to have buildings named after us, okay? None of us are leaving a legacy. Most of us are going to remain anonymous until the day we die and will be forgotten. What happens to the work of your hands? You spent all those years building or writing or making or managing or teaching. What happens to that work? Is it, is it simply gone forever as if you never existed? Can also be a burden. <laughs> I mean, some of us hate our jobs. Let's be honest. Even if you like your job, you might really be in a toxic workplace. And what do you do then? You know, this, you're going to spend your days and hours of your life working in a toxic environment for a company or a boss that you don't like. In, in some cases, in many cases, we could see the curse, the curse on our first parents in that work can be used as a means of oppression. Think of how many slaves there have been on planet Earth to do mining, to do farming, to do housework. Where work is a way to turn them from a human being with the dignity of the image of God into a thing. Into a cog in a factory, into just a thing that fetches coal out of the ground or silver out of the ground or a thing that cleans. And aside from all that, work is often insecure. I mean, I think all of us live in some anxiety about the loss of our job. If, if our career field 
uh, it dries up or you lose a particular job or some other catastrophe happens in the economy, not only is there the economic fallout, which is of probably most immediate consequence, but also you deal with the, what am I now? Like when, if you retire, as many of us will, what are you now? If this was a, a, a self-defining thing, my work, who am I? And also for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have to ask the question, what does work have to do with my faith? Like Jesus is supposed to be our number one commitment if you're a Christian, but most of your week is not spent praying, doing devotions, sharing the gospel, worshiping or any of those things. It's spent at your job, at your vocation. So how does faith in Christ actually help me resolve, help you resolve these difficulties around work, the futility, the burden of work, and also the, the, the oppressive nature of our work. And what is it like? Is it disconnected from our faith? Are we being somehow less faithful that we pump more hours into this than we do walking with Jesus? And also more importantly for at the moment, what does it have to do with this text? This text of Exodus 25 through 31. It's, a, it's an interesting text because if I told you that someone I know on their Facebook feed or Instagram feed, every third post, like 30% or 33% of what they post is about Premier League soccer. Could you conclude that that person really, really loves, is passionate about Premier League soccer? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a third of what they have to say. Well, the book of Exodus is taken up. One third of it, 12 chapters, is dedicated to the building of a tent. Why is God so passionate about this tent? And what does it have to do with the work of our hands? and the difficulties and futility around work. Well, we're going to do a little Bible detective uh, here. I, I'm going, we're going to just get into the text and see if we can identify what is happening. Look with me at Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9. God says, And let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a tent. And all and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So wait, what? God's going to spend a third of the book of Exodus, this really key book, on a tent. The pattern of the tent. Pattern's important here. You see, there was two parts to this tent. There was a curtain in the middle of it. There's a behind the curtain and in front of the curtain. And, and notice what he says. All of its furniture, you shall make it. Why is that important? Why, why, why was Moses spending space on this? Well, let's pay attention first to the pattern. What, what is the pattern being established here? Let's look at verse 10 here. It says, they shall make an ark of, of acacia wood. I think that's how you pronounce it. Who knows? Two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. 
Now, I brought pictures to help you visualize this, so hopefully the, the text is making sense with the picture. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Okay, continuing on uh, more about this ark, verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. That is the, the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in, the, in, in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is the command to make the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that melts Nazi faces. Um, and it's supposed to go behind the curtain. It has angels on it, okay? It has the Word of God in it, and it has the presence of God over it. Do you hear that? Word of God is in it, angels are on it, and God's presence is over it. Now, the over it is key. This ark is supposed to be the footstool. Right? That, that's the idea. A footstool is not just like something you put your feet up on. It's very symbolic for an ancient king. You would sit in your throne and then you would have a footstool where you would put your feet and it would represent the thing that you ruled over. Okay. So if, if God's footstool is on the other side of the tent, the idea is that God's throne is there. You see? Not yet? Okay, let's keep going. When we look at the other side of the curtain, it might become clearer. So in front of the, uh, of the curtain, on the other side of the curtain in this tent, we first of all have a table with bread on it and there's not super special instructions. Look at verse 2530. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So this is just a gold table just a gold table. I wish I had one. Uh, but it's a table, basic, and it has bread. How many loaves of bread? The answer is 12. 12 breads like the 12 tribes of Israel. They're in front of the curtain. Interesting. Okay, what else is the furniture inside of this tabernacle? Well, there's the, the table with the bread, and then there is a lamp Look with me at 25, 31 through 33. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. Okay, so um, so you look at the picture of this thing. It's a lampstand, and it looks like a tree, doesn't it? Have we, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, has there been a significant tree? Yes, if you're thinking, oh, the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. That's, that is what it signifies. And 
Oh, by the way, okay, so from the Garden of Eden, and it has how many? Six, three to each side, and one in the middle. That's seven. So could we think of the significance of the number seven? Oh, yeah, the days of creation. So it's a tree that represents creation. So we got the bread, tribes of Israel. The tree is, the, is, is representing creation. And then there is also, we don't need to go to the verse, there's an altar of incense. And the incense represents the, the, the praises rising up from God's people. Do you see the pattern yet? Do you see what this tent is? Let's review. Behind the curtain, the presence of God, angels, God's footstool, and implied God's throne. The other side, people, creation, praises. In front of the curtain is earth. Behind the curtain, it symbolizes heaven. God's space. The curtain, the tabernacle in this curtain, it is the, the place that heaven and earth meet in the same way that a door, the door to my house, is where outside and inside meet. This is the threshold. Why is it so significant that this is the place that heaven and earth meet? Well, it's because that is the central focus of redemption, is God reuniting heaven and earth, God bringing back what was torn apart. Okay, do you see how that's key? And how this tabernacle is the first foothold of God establishing his kingdom on earth. What will end, as we see in the book of Revelation, what will end with the full reunion of heaven and earth begins with this little foothold, this one doorway from which heaven enters in to earth. Now, how is this thing going to be built? This thing that is so key to God's plan of redemption. How is it going to be built? Let's look at chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence. Wow. Bazalo, he's going to be filled with the Spirit of God and intelligence. He's called by name. He must be, what, a prophet, a priest, a preacher, a writer, a worship leader. None of the above. Look at what he is. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So the Spirit of God is filling his people to accomplish his mission. And who is it? Not prophets, priests, worship leaders, and preachers. Working men. That's who. Hammer swingers. Chiselers. That sort of thing. That's who's being filled with the Spirit of God to accomplish God's purposes. To establish this 
this thing of utmost importance, the tabernacle, the entryway of God's presence onto earth. Did God stop this at the tabernacle? Was this the last time? No, of course, we have the temple, famously. The tabernacle gives way to the temple. God's presence is then located, the temple gives way to Jesus. And then the, 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 the coming of the Holy Spirit in establishing the church. Is the church, the church which is now the presence of God on earth, is the continuation of the tabernacle, which will end with the full reunion of heaven and earth. How is it built? It's built with the people God calls. It is built not just with the clergy. It is built with all the people. And it takes the efforts, the skills, the know-how, the work of everyone to form the church, the, the place of God's presence on earth. So, so you see that when a person unites their work with God's mission, God redeems work. This is what's on offer in the Christian faith with regards to work, is the redemption of work. Look, quick biblical theology of work. Where does work begin? After the fall? After Genesis 3? No. Work begins Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see in creation is God taking chaos and bringing order to it. By the way, full credit to Tim Keller for this, for this insight that I heard a, a couple weeks ago. It's really quite astounding. He takes chaos and he forms it into a place where human beings can flourish. Right? He separates the waters to create dry land. He separates uh, you know, sea from sky. He brings uh, plants up out of the ground and animals. Right? It, it, man, look at that. He takes, he takes the chaos of the dirt. He forms it into a human, breathes life. And he gives the man and woman a job to be gardeners. In paradise, in Eden, human beings had work. It is not part of the curse. It is part of blessing. And what is gardening? It's taking chaos and rearranging it into order so that things like vegetables, fruits, flowers spring up out of the ground. Now, is it, is it that hard to see this pattern of organizing chaos into order in many of the things, many of the jobs that we have? A lot of you think of God's work as what I do or what someone who's in vocational ministry does, or working with the homeless or something like that. It is God's work. That is part of the redemptive work. But you see, the creative work of God, many of you do a continuation of that. For those of you who build things, you're taking chaos, wood and nails and all this stuff. You take these elements and you form it into something like a house or a piece of furniture or... Um, a garden or landscape. Those of you who work for the internet, that's my catch-all term for tech jobs because I don't understand what you do. Except that you take, uh, you take electric impulses or something like that, the zeros and the ones, the open and the shut, and you take that chaos and rearrange it 
into incredibly useful things, much of it useful, like GPS apps or music apps or all of these other, other things that, yes, some of it goes too far, but think of how, how much human flourishing can come from digital ability or uh, medical. Right? You're taking a body that's going wrong, rearranging it so that it flourishes again. A teacher. You're taking unformed children, students who, 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 who are, you know, raw material, so to speak, and guiding them and forming them so that they flourish. Do you see how that's just a continuation of the pattern of the original work that human beings had and the work of God in creation? Who does the work of God? You do. Parents. Oh, this is a huge one. Talk about forming, uh, forming, flourishing out of chaos. That, that's a huge part of parenting. And this goes like our work is incorporated into God's plan of redemption. What was God's plan for earth before the fall? It's not that we would stay in gardens, but that, that we would spread this culture of the garden throughout the earth. There would have been a human history. And guess what? Everyone would have had a job. That's not part of the fall. It, it was an intended part of human history. And so as we are to return earth to a place of flourishing for God and people to dwell together, our work is involved. We aren't spending the majority of our waking hours not walking with God. Work is part of how we walk with God. It is part of our offering to God. God redeems work. Now, how does it address the futility, the burden, the insecurity of work? All these issues we talked about before. Well, first of all, God gives work purpose. If you've ever seen a, um, a Buddhist sand mandala, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's all these Buddhist monks. They get together and around this flat table, they spend sometimes weeks, grain of sand by grain of sand, these colored grains of sand, making these beautiful, intricate works of art. They're really beautiful if you see them. Do you know what they do as soon as they're done? They all blow on it and destroy it and they wipe it away. This is symbolic of what they see as the futility of human endeavor. That the days of your life are spent on something you care so much about that you work so hard at, but it is, it is doomed to oblivion. Not so if God redeems work. Not so if your work is actually part of how God is bringing his kingdom about, how God is building his church, how God is preparing earth to be a place of flourishing for humans and God to dwell together. So if you are in, I can't go, like I want to, I want to say everyone's career here. That's just not possible. If you ever want to talk about this, if you're struggling with this and you're like, I don't get what my job has to do with my faith, by all means, buy me a croissant and I will sit down with you 
And, I, and we will talk about how your job contributes to God's plan of redemption, how, how your work is actually part of redemption, how God redeems your work, how, it, yes, you won't be remembered in human history, but still your contribution is valuable in God's kingdom, that the work of your hands lives on that you didn't teach those kids in vain. You didn't build those things in vain. You didn't sell those things in vain or, or whatever it is. That it's actually part of how God redeems work. He gives work purpose. But also, God dignifies work. You know, it, it, you could think of so many, like I, like I said before, there's so many ways in which work has been used to oppress, to deny dignity, to turn a human being into a widget, you know? It, it, it's all over the place. Some of you may feel like that at work. I don't matter here. All I am is a, a, little, a little node in this machine. That's all I am. It's not all you are. Let me ask you this. These, these fellows that we just read about, about Bazalel and Oholiab, these people who were skilled at metalworking and stuff like that, where, where'd they learn it? They learn this in the desert as they're wandering through the wilderness. No, where was it? It was back in Egypt. What were they in Egypt? They were slaves. The, the, the skill of their hands was developed as a slave. They were forced to do this for their masters. It was dehumanizing. It did not recognize their dignity. If you want to, you know, we marvel at these great works of ancient Egypt, but the blood of the slaves is on every inch of that. How many people died making these wonders that we go and check out and say, isn't Egypt great? They were, they were some of those slaves. But what does God do? This skill that you learned that was an indignity, he says, not anymore. As a free man, you are going to contribute your skill, not as a slave, but as part of the kingdom, as the one whose hands are going to build the thing that, that, that is the, the place where God's presence enters into earth. As we are all called to be part of the building up of God's church, where, where God's presence enters earth now, whether you are, you know, a, a, a higher up at the UN or whether you're mopping floors at a school, which is perfectly good work, but not prestigious, right? You may look down on that. Well, guess what? As part of God's kingdom, as part of building God's church, it, 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 Work is no longer an indignity or a means of oppression. God dignifies work. You work for God. No one else. But also, God incorporates our work. God uses our work. Um, you know, we could see this just... I know some people who, who they, they struggle because they say, well, I'm just a, I'm good at wealth management for the wealthy. Okay, and, and maybe maybe a redirection of that to 
manage wealth for everybody, not just the wealthy would be helpful and redemptive, but also, you know, understanding that uh, that even the contributions that we're able to make to support the church, like God using what we give to build his kingdom it, it is an amazing redemption of our work. I, I remember just, just what an honor it is to, to have something of yours included in, in something greater than you. One time, uh, my band, we were, back when I used to play in a band, we were doing a recording, making a record at, at a pretty well-known studio, you know, like the, the records on the wall that, that were recorded, they were pretty impressive. Uh, I didn't feel like I belonged. <laughs> I wasn't tracking, so I was just kind of sitting in the common area, reading a book, eating a bagel, and uh, it was still morning, and in walked two really haggard-looking guys, and I recognized them. They were They were... They were the, the creators of South Park and they were looking harassed and wheeling in gear, you know, not having a great day. And then after them walked in uh, a singer from one of my favorite bands, Jane's Addiction, Perry Farrell, the singer. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> and, and one of the guys who was with South Park, he's the music director. I asked him what they were doing. He sits down and we start talking and. And uh, he says, well, we're making a making the Chef Aid album. You can look this up. It exists. They made a, a South Park album um, with famous singers uh, singing these 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 South Park songs. Um, I actually got to listen to Perry Farrell singing the Hot Lava song that day. And um, but then I looked at the door and one more person was coming in. A Rolls Royce pulled up outside. I was like, dang, Rolls Royce. And then this guy got out that looked like a creature and he had this long beard and he had these jeans on that clearly he bought 30 pounds ago, but they were torn up acid wash jeans and my jaw hit the floor because I was looking at none other than world famous legendary record producer Rick Rubin. You may not know who he is. He co-founded Def Jam. He produced Jay-Z. He produced the Beastie Boys, Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, you name it. He's worked with them. He's a legend. And he walked in and he sat down at the table and he started chewing out the guy who worked for South Park that I was talking to because the guy forgot to get a bass amp. And he's like, how could you forget to get a bass amp? Da, da, da. We're going to waste all this time. And and um, and the, the South Park guy pointed at me. He says, hey, he's in a band. They have a bass amp. I said, you know, I'm barely daring to speak. I said, yes, Mr. Rubin, if you'd like our bass amp, I'm happy to go get it for you. And like our bass player was tracking. I would have had to shut down our session, but I would have done it. And Rick Rubin looked at me at him and he looked at me and he went and he got up and walked away. <laughs> now he turned me down, but it would have been the honor of my life that I could go get something that Rick Rubin could use in a recording. I would have been totally honored. I mean that sincerely that he would take whatever resources I could bring and use it in what he was making. You may feel like your contribution to God's kingdom is small, whether it's a financial contribution or the actual work you do or the volunteering that we do at church. Like it may seem small, but God is happy to take that offering, to take what we offer, to, to what we say, God, here for your kingdom, for your church. And he uses it in his plan of redemption. That's a lot better than Rick Rubin using your bass amp, isn't it? 
that the work you do teaching a kid, programming the zeros and ones, serving patients in a hospital, the, the contributions we make to God's work in the world, in the church, God uses all that and incorporates it into his plan of redemption. He redeems work. Work isn't futile for us. It is not dehumanizing and undignified because God redeems work. The key is that we understand our work is not for our bosses and not for ourselves. Not the thing that makes us who we are, but it is for God and his kingdom. We have to understand that we are part of something bigger and our work is part of how we walk with God. I heard a story once, might be true, might not. There was uh, a cathedral being built some town. And, um, and the architect, unbeknownst to the workers, walked up to three different workers that were working on these massive stone blocks, right? This was a, a multi-decade church, a, a building of a church, like a cathedral. And he walked up to the first guy and he said, uh, hey, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, sir, I'm, I'm chiseling away at this rock. Okay. And he goes to the next guy and he asks him, he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm pounding away at this stupid rock and I'm going to do that tomorrow and the next day and the next day for the rest of my life until I'm in the ground. Okay. He goes to the third guy. He says, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. This stone is going to be part of the south wall. It's going to be right there, my block. You, you, you see how when we understand our work, our contribution is part of something that God is orchestrating into something greater than us. It makes our work meaningful and dignified. God redeems work. When we go into work tomorrow, you're not working for your boss or for yourself. You're working for God. So if it's a job that you hate, or if it's a job that you love for, a, for, for maybe a boss that you struggle with, if your work at times seems pointless to you, if it feels like a distraction from Jesus, instead, offer your day of work to God. God redeems work. We need to work for God. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I pray that your word would direct us into paths of wisdom and righteousness that we could understand that our endeavors on earth are not futile. Our endeavors on earth are not for anyone other than you. I pray that you would use our work, the works of our hands, and redeem them. In Jesus' name, amen.